Okay, well, let's turn our attention back to Isaiah. My goodness, uh, it's been a while since uh, we've been in Isaiah. We, we came to the, the mountain peak. Remember, the, the Mount Everest of the book is Isaiah chapter 53, talking about uh, the servant and his role in redemption. And, and you, you, can you imagine just, just putting on your, uh, your early uh, ancient Near Eastern sandals? Um, I think they, they look like those, those Adidas soccer sandals. I think they look just like that. But anyway, whatever those, those uh, early century uh, sandals looked like, but you can imagine if you're Isaiah and you're hearing his message and remember, uh, they are surrounded by the Assyrians when Isaiah is writing and uh, things are not looking good and, and previous kings have made covenants with other nations. And of course that hasn't been good. They need to be trusting in the Lord. God says, I'll protect you. I'll, I'll give you all you need if you'll just take my word for it. And yet they were tempted to side with, uh, the enemies or, or other surrounding nations and, uh, and Isaiah works through all of that, and he says, but I have a servant, right? My servant's coming, and he's going to right every wrong, and he's going to be the king, and, and all of this. And then we get to Isaiah 53, and what do we hear? Well, what happens to the, the mighty warrior, God's servant? They kill him. And we wonder... It, I mean, and it's so hard, but, but put, seriously, put yourself in their situation and think, this is the hope of the book. They kill the king. And it reminds us of something that Paul's going to say centuries later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the word of the cross is foolishness, isn't it? God's plan of redemption through his servant, the Messiah, doesn't look like what we think of as victory sometimes. It doesn't look like what the Jews largely thought, that this mighty king is going to come, come in in the, in the, in the line of, of David the king, and he is going to wipe out the Assyrians and wipe out the Babylon, Babylonians, and, and we're going to have this, this utopia, right? Well, not yet. The servant comes to live, yes, but also to die, and he dies, as Isaiah talks about, to bear the sins of the many, doesn't he? And uh, so it's great, great. But, but you, can, you can imagine the frustration of some of the early readers as they get to this, thinking this is, this is the best part of the book. So anyway, so before we get there, uh, what we want to do is just review kind of where we've been. We've had several new people join the class, both online and here. And if you're like me, uh, you know, when we started this class a year ago, that was a long time ago. So let's, we're gonna, we're gonna reset and review. We're gonna call this a mid, uh, a mid-course review today. And then we're gonna come up to Isaiah 54, chapter 54, which is where we left off. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna make, we're gonna make a hundred yard dash. We're gonna make a sprint for the finish line and, and hopefully come to the end of Isaiah by the end of the year. And oh man, some of the best things are yet in store. We, we have some of the best chapters, not just in Isaiah, but in the whole Bible that we have yet uh, to come to. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, you can grab your notes. You can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, please. And let me share my screen here. Uh, let's see. Okay, can you see that? Is that sharing? You guys at home? Oh, there we go. Uh-oh. <laughs> Zoom just crashed. Hang on. 
I'm back. Are you guys okay at home? Was that turbulence? Electronic turbulence? Okay. Uh, can you see my screen at home? No? Okay, hang on. Let's try this again. Hold your breath. There we go. Can you see it now? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate the thumbs up there. Okay, so now I need to bring up my notes so I know what I'm doing. Here we go. Okay. All right, so uh, coming back to Isaiah, we want to get our bearing, right? Uh, What is this book about? Where is it in terms of, you know, location in our Bible and and how we understand this? So we just want to kind of get our bearing here. We'll work our way back to where we've been in chapter 54. Remember that uh, this is what we call the the arc of biblical history, and and I appreciate uh, the the book 30 Days Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. As a new Christian, I stumbled on this book, and it is so helpful. If you're a new Christian or maybe you're a seasoned Christian and the Bible still overwhelms you in terms of, you know, where do I go to find this or that, the Bible is organized into 12 main sort of thematic sections, uh, creation, uh, the patriarch period, the exodus, the conquest, the judges, right? And we work through these eras of biblical history as we work through our Bibles. Now, the Bible is not all in chronological order, but these uh, these general themes, these general uh, headings in the arc of biblical history that you see in your notes and on the screen there, that helps us to think through the, the different phases of biblical history. So you, you, you know some of these, right? The patriarch period, that's Abraham. Uh, Isaac, um, and uh, Exodus, of course, that's Moses and the deliverance from Egypt, the conquest, that's the era of Joshua where they went in to take the land. And then uh, number five there, the judges. You remember the judges period where um, the people were turning to uh, ungodly practices and idolatry, so God raised up judges in those days to judge the people, to provide leadership. So we're thinking about Samuel and Samson and Gideon and guys like that. And then in, in chapter uh, number six, their kingdom, that's when Israel demanded a king uh, in the time of Samuel. And you remember the story about what happened there and God's recommendation that we don't really want to do that. Uh, but the people insisted, and so God gave them King Saul and then also King David, and later on King Solomon. And then as we go into number seven, the exile, you remember what happened uh, shortly after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, between his son and a competing ruler, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And so now you have Israel, but it's, it's really divided into two nations, uh, the northern kingdom, which we sometimes just call Israel, The capital city is Samaria, so when you see references in your Bible to Samaria, it's talking about that northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom, that's the kingdom of Judah, uh, headquartered in Jerusalem. And so you will remember that Isaiah is writing during this time frame of the the kingdom years and the exile years. So that kind of gives us some context. Uh, Of course, the return would be when they come back from the Babylonian captivity on into the silent years and then the gospel and the church era. So with that in mind, um, let's, let's just remind ourselves of what's going on in the actual book of Isaiah as it relates to that kingdom era, okay? Israel demands that God gives them a king. We just talked about some of this. A civil war occurs, and uh, the, the kingdom is divided, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and I think you have all that there in your notes. That just gives you a, 
some notes on what I just described, okay? So if we, if we parachute into Isaiah, we recognize that that's where we're living right now. We're, Isaiah is writing in the time of this divided kingdom. And uh, <clears throat> so more specifically, we're thinking about, you know, 1110 to 723 BC. So right in that, that era there, that's, that's the span of the kingdom era. We're thinking about books like First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, along with books that happen during those historic events, like the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and as you see there, several of the prophets. Uh, the, the, the theme, really, of the kingdom era, this whole kingdom, is that David, the greatest king of Israel, is followed by a succession of mostly unrighteous kings. God eventually judges Israel for their disobedience by sending them into exile. So that, that's the flyover of what's going to happen in this particular uh, season of biblical history. Now, check this out. Is that not awesome? Do you feel like you're at your eye doctor? Can you please read line three for me? Um, you're probably not going to be able to see that, and, and this was a graphic. I'll be right back, guys. Um, this was a graphic that uh, I found early on in my study. Really, really interesting. But this is this is kind of the history in, in visual form. And what's really interesting about this, grab my laser here, is it divides this up. Um, so here, here's where the kingdom divides, right? So here's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And uh, so this is the divided kingdom. So this is going to be the northern kingdom. This is going to be the southern kingdom. So the green line follows the Judean kings, right? The southern kingdom kings. And then the yellow line follows the northern kingdom kings, right? And then what happens here? The Assyrian captivity, which means the northern kingdom goes away. They get taken off into Babylon. So if we come down here, the, the timeline continues down here. So we see that the southern kingdom continues for a little while until the temple is destroyed and then the southern kingdom is taken into captivity. So it makes sense? You got that? And I know that's hard to see. Let me, let me zoom in on this section that we're really interested in because, you know, the kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and we're coming up on the Assyrian captivity and uh, But you'll see, this is where our friend, Mr. Isaiah, ministered. So during his lifetime, what's going to happen? The Assyrian captivity, right? Assyria is going to come and take the northern kingdom. You also see, here's the kings, Hezekiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the four kings of Judah that are reigning during Isaiah's uh, time of prophecy. And also notice, Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah and Hosea. So those would have been his buddies. Um, it's likely that he would have known them. Uh, they had differing ministries, of course, and uh, it's not like they were, you know, friends on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, and they could just, you know, text each other, "Hey, I'm having a hard season, you know, prophesying today." But they, they, they likely knew one another, and that gives you some, some idea of, you know, sometimes you read your Bible and you're going, it just seems all separate, you know, and there's all these different people, and you see that actually many of the prophets knew, likely knew one another and were prophesying even together at times um, the same message to the same people. Yes, ma'am. If you email me, I can send you this. Um, I look, you know, I, I try to honor copyrights when I find stuff, and uh, nobody on the internet can find the source of this. So everybody just kind of considers it, you know, open source. Um, uh, otherwise, there'd be a footnote there. But if you just email me, I can send that to you. Um, 
Like some, someday when we have that house with the big fish room that we've talked about and, and the workshop where Alan can work on his car, we'll, we'll have a room like with Bible history and we'll just have the walls like wallpapered with timelines and, you know, ancient. Lisa's looking at me like, yeah, right. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so in heaven, I'll have a room that, no. Okay. So that's the timeline that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of where we're at in terms of Isaiah and the events that happen. Uh, of course, if you look at the top of that, you see the actual years. So 800, 790, 780, we're counting down. Kids, wh- kids, why are we counting down? Why are the years counting down there? You know why? You know why, Rhea? Why are, the, why are the years counting down? Anybody know why they're counting down? I know you old people know that. Or, or, yes, Tucker, why are they counting down? That's right, because it's B.C., before Christ. Very good. So the years count down to Christ's birth, and then from there we change to A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and we count up, which is why next year will be 2021 and not 2019. We count up now, right? Did you know that? So that's why the timeline's counting down there. And you can see the the people in red are uh, some of the uh, foreign kings, the Assyrian kings there. Okay, so back to this. So the book of Isaiah, what what is the book of Isaiah about? The book of Isaiah is a record of the prophet Isaiah's ministry to Judah, which is the southern kingdom, warning them of a future judgment if they do not repent, but promising them a future hope and a kingdom that will come when the servant is revealed. So that's really what the book is about in a nutshell. And, And, you know, we'll get to this in a moment, but this book is so, so incredible in the view of God that it reveals. And that's why I wanted to study it with you. Um, and hopefully that's, that's been beneficial to you. So during Isaiah's lifetime, he's going to witness the northern kingdom, that's Israel, captured and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. You can read about that in the historic book of Second Kings, chapter 17. And then a thwarted attempt by them under Sennacherib to capture Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. So uh, Sennacherib, another Assyrian leader, uh, once he takes Israel, he's going he's gonna to make a run on uh, Jerusalem. And I, actually, I don't have the map here on the slide, but you, you remember the map I showed you? You've, you've got, um, you've got the, the nation of Judah is like the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Assyria is an empire that goes all the way out to like New Mexico, all the way up to... Oklahoma, all the way over past Louisiana, and all the way down to Mexico. So you've got this huge bit of geography, right? That's the Assyrian Empire. And Judah is like the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the middle of all that. They're the only area that hasn't been conquered by the Assyrians. So, I mean, literally, if you were living as, as a Jewish person in Judah, every night you went to bed, you're going, is tonight the night they attack? Right? Is tonight the night? Because you knew they had their focus on getting that last little piece of uh, geography that they hadn't conquered yet. Now, Isaiah foretold of the coming Babylonian captivity, and that's going to be uh, the nation that comes and eventually takes over the southern kingdom. Not the Assyrians, but the people after them, the Babylonians. And uh, you've seen this before. I didn't put this in your notes because I know you guys have seen this before. But um, this is basically the the outline of the book. Um, the, the book is divided uh, essentially into two halves, or we could say three halves. There, you know, chapter one to chapter thirty-five is really about Isaiah calling people to repentance because of 
the sin and idolatry of the people, the injustice, the corrupt leadership. Um, then there's this little historical parenthesis about Hezekiah. He's one of the last kings, and uh, he looks really, really hopeful. And then right at the end of his ministry, he crashes and burns uh, in his pride. And then in chapter 40 to 66, that's the second half, or we might say the third half of the book. And, and that series of prophecies is really related to the comfort and the encouragement part of the book. And, of course, the time frame, we're, we're talking about 740 to 680, is uh, where this takes place. Okay, now, who's Isaiah? Uh, his name means Yahweh is salvation. You may remember that. Uh, Yahweh is salvation. And uh, so a very biblically appropriate word, since he's going to be the one, the human author, to write Isaiah 53, probably the most amazing chapter in the Old Testament about Yahweh's salvation through his servant. He was married and had two sons. You remember way, way back at the beginning of the book, we talked about this? And uh, there's these babies that are born and prophesied, and, and um, God, God often get, told the prophets to give their children interesting names. You remember that? <laughs> and uh, so Isaiah was married, and he had two sons, according to those verses. Uh, he was likely martyred by being sawed in half by King Manasseh. And there's an allusion to his death in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. Uh, Hebrews does not name Isaiah, but uh, church, church history has preserved uh, the thinking of that day. And the, um, we don't have any biblical historic account of how he died, but there are extra biblical sources and tradition that uh, make it clear he was likely martyred by Manasseh. Okay, so what is unique about Isaiah? The book is the third longest in the Old Testament. That's why we're still going. You're wondering, why are we still studying Isaiah? Because it's the third longest book in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah is quoted more than any other book in the New Testament. And we've had fun looking at some of those um, New Testament references there. We'll see some more in the weeks to come. Isaiah is mentioned by name over 20 times uh, in the New Testament, that is. And the book of Isaiah contains the most vivid prophecy about the Messiah. And uh, we've talked about that as well. And, and just the last time we looked at Isaiah together, we talked about 53 there. Okay. So why do we need Isaiah? Let's just remind ourselves, why are we taking this large time investment over a year and, and looking at uh, this great book? Uh, we need Isaiah because we tend to minimize the seriousness of idolatry. I hope, for those of you that have been on the journey of Isaiah up to this time thus far, you would see with me that when we give our heart's greatest allegiance and trust and love to something or someone other than the Lord, that God takes that very seriously. You shall have no other gods before me. And there's a reason that that command is first. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. The greatest commandment, right? And Isaiah underlines in an actual historic time what God thinks of idolatry. The judgment that came upon Assyria, the judgment that will come on Judah comes because God is saying... I want your exclusive trust and allegiance and love, and I will not compete with other gods. 
That's what Psalm 2 is talking about, right? God has set his son as king, and he's calling everybody to worship the son. And so a book like Isaiah reminds us that when our heart is distracted by worldliness, or our heart is tempted to put our trust in a political leader, or if our heart is captured by uh, our own ingenuity or our own talents or a relationship or, or some other pursuit, that when, when, we, when we put the focus of our trust somewhere else other than God, that is a serious moral offense. And I hope that you can see that if God was willing to send his very people into captivity, people whom he loved, people who he covenanted with, people with whom he said, I'm, I'm pulling you out as, as my nation, as my special people. If God's willing to send them into captivity over their idolatry, then we probably ought to take our own idolatry pretty seriously, shouldn't we? So we need Isaiah to help us to see That we don't minimize things like that. That those things are serious before the Lord. Secondly, we need Isaiah because we are prone to wander as the Israelites did. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That uh, there's an example in the Old Testament. And it's given to us in part so we don't follow that example. Um, Well, let me just ask you this. Are Are you prone to wander in your faith like I am? Do you, do you do this? You're on Facebook one night. You're looking at posts. You know, you've just read your Bible. You've just read your Bible. And you're looking at Facebook and you're getting angry. You're getting frustrated and you're, you know, why is this? It shouldn't be like this. And before you know it, you're, 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 like, you're yelling at Facebook. Now. Facebook can't hear you. Well, actually, we don't know that. They might be spying on you. That's a whole other conversation for another day. But anyway, as far as we know, and, and, and you are irritated. You are angry. You are upset. You're, you're, you're throwing up your hands and you're going, what on earth is going on? Is that you? See, we need Isaiah to remind us that we are prone to wander. We are prone in a moment like that, to forget that our God is in the heavens, that he's ruling and reigning over all this seeming chaos, that his plan is right on schedule, that his plan is not thwarted when our will is not done, <laughs> when things don't go the way we think they should go, when our guy doesn't get elected, when when this person doesn't you know, respond the way we, right? And, and we need Isaiah to remember that it's possible to have a quiet heart in the midst of a chaotic world because we're prone to wander. We, we need that. Number three, we need to better understand God's plan of salvation unfolded in history. I, thought, I hope that you've seen this, that, that as God is bringing this to pass in Isaiah, he, he's showing us He's showing us the people's need. He's showing us, as we've looked at in recent weeks, the servant, his servant who who comes. Now remember, the the servant is supposed to be who? The first time the servant's identified in in, uh, chapter 40 and and 45 there, who's the servant? Do you remember? I know it was a long time ago. Who's the servant? I'll give you a hint. It's not Jesus. 
Yeah, yeah, way back in the first chapters, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Cyrus, right, is his, uh, is his servant. And we go, did we get that right? God, you're saying this pagan, ungodly, immoral king is your servant? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wants. Is that kind of good to remember right now? If come November, what you want to happen doesn't happen, does that thwart the plan of God? Now, that, that's not an excuse to be, to be casual about that or to not care about that or to not vote responsibly. But you just understand that we understand in, in the plan and heart of God, he can use and does use wicked, ungodly, immoral rulers to accomplish his plan. And then the servant is supposed to be Israel, right? Because Israel is supposed to be the light to the nations, the light to the Gentiles. And, and then what happens? They fail. So God's going to bring someone from the Israelite family uh, who comes in chapter 52 and 53 uh, to redeem humanity. So we, we need Isaiah to better understand God's plan of unfolding salvation in history. We need the confidence of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, we're talking about this, uh, and, and, and Weldon, I'm sure you see this on your college campus. Uh, students, I'm sure you see this talking in your schools or your uh, sports teams or whatever, and, and people are going, why should I believe the Bible, right? You know why you should believe the Bible? Because God tells us stuff before it happens, and then it happens. And that's pretty amazing. Do, do you remember, you remember the, the main example we looked at in recent weeks? God says, um, <clears throat> Isaiah, I want you to go tell him about this guy Cyrus. Who's Cyrus? Well, he's not born yet. And he comes from a nation of Persia. Well, where's Persia? Well, it's this little teeny tiny, but they're not in power yet. And that guy's going to be this, my servant to deliver my people from Babylonians. And he says that years and years before Cyrus was even born. Before Persia was ever in power. Why does God do that? Because God wants us to have a confidence in his word. That's why he does it. And Isaiah helps us to see that. And we get to see the Messiah foretold, right? And we've seen that multiple times. Finally, we need to study Isaiah because we all suffer from a small God complex. Our God is too small, isn't he? You know, do you know, do you know how you can detect if you have a small God complex? You know, you can go to the doctor and they'll do a flu test, tell you if you have the flu. Do you know how you can, what test happens to know that your God is too small? Any time something in this world gets you flustered, your God's too small. Anytime you and I look out and we say, oh no! This can't be happening. Our God is too small. And, and, if, and if you think what's gone on politically and societally and culturally in our country over the last six months is difficult, just put yourself in the situation of the Jews in the southern kingdom 
in Isaiah's day. We don't know the first thing about societal difficulty compared to what these folks were going through. And what does God say? God says, the best thing I can do is remind you of who I am. With that in mind, watch this. Can you hear that? Judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost. That God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. And it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice. And God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God. And Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment. But because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. 
But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land. But there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin. And one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance. And the city is miraculously saved overnight. 
But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Remember that? Yeah? Okay. So, everybody up to speed now? Make sense? Got it? Okay. So let's uh, turn in our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 40, and let's pick it up from that point, and uh, we'll bring ourselves up to our current chapter. So with chapter 39, as you just saw in the video, ending on a very sour note where Hezekiah, who appeared to be that king that everybody was hoping for, he... He ends his ministry in pride and arrogance. Uh, you remember the, the, last, the last little part of chapter 39. Uh, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. And, and Isaiah has just told him that his own sons are going to be taken away. And uh, that just shows you the extent of, of Hezekiah's uh, pride and, and selfishness as he comes to the conclusion of his life. So chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort. Oh, comfort. And that's the first theme that we see in the second part of the book here. Comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, as you say, what's happening? Remember that there is a, there is time travel that happens between chapter 39 and chapter 40. You guys remember this? Then in chapter 39 it ends, and that's, that's happening in Isaiah's lifetime. Chapters 40 to 66, Isaiah is looking ahead to after the Babylonian captivity. Okay? So, so he's talking to them, uh, once that captivity has already happened, and he is giving them comfort for their restoration. And uh, so that's what's going on here. And, and we remember that we, do, we take that 150-year jump from the time of Hezekiah to the time that uh, Isaiah is envisioning uh, during the captivity that happens in chapter 40 to 66. So what, what's the point of chapter 40? That there is comfort and hope and peace uh, for the nation. You're saying, wait a minute, but they're in exile. Right? They sinned and God judged them. And, and, and God is saying, yes. Yes, I disciplined you. Look at the end of verse 2. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's been judgment. There's been discipline. There's been consequences. But now God's discipline is over. 
and he is going to restore his people by bringing them back to the land. And in chapter 40, you guys know this is probably one of your favorite chapters in the Bible, at least it is for me. You have these great pictures of God's greatness and judgment and his word. Uh, this is where we, we hear those wonderful uh, verses there. The grass withers, verse 7, the flower fades, right? Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Reminding the people as they sit in judgment in Babylon that God is going to be faithful to his word. He is going to bring them back and restore them uh, as repentance occurs. And why can he do that? How can he do that? Verse 12 reminds us of God's power and greatness, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance in the hills in a pair of scales. And he goes on to just describe God's immensity, what theologians would call uh, that, his, his strength, his power, his wisdom. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? And he compares it to the idols of the day in both Babylon and the Assyrian Empire and even some of the uh, idols that the the Jews had gotten into. And so uh, chapter 40 ends with this wonderful vision that uh, the everlasting Lord, this is 28, the, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. And though youths grow weary and tired, vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord. How long were they in captivity? Think of Daniel. Seventy years. That's right. And you see that this this is written to that generation. Those who wait for the Lord, they've been in captivity. Some of them have been in captivity coming up to that 70th year, like Daniel writes about in his letter. And yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, right? God's deliverance. He's going to be faithful to his promises. So we see comfort and, and, and track this. I, I hope uh, if you've gotten out of the habit of reading Isaiah, I hope I can, I can urge you back to reading through uh, the prophet Isaiah as we get back to our study. Look for the theme of comfort. In fact, if you would like, take a pencil and just circle. Every time you see comfort, or if you're using an electronic Bible, you can use the highlighting feature, and you'll see it all throughout uh, this section, chapter 40 through 66. Okay. We also see in this section um, uh, this future hope, and we've already seen that in chapter 40. Uh, we see it again in um, chapter 42, the, the future hope that God is going to redeem them and bring them back. Uh, we see that here um, in, uh, for example, ver- chapter 42, verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law, talking about this coming servant uh, that will come. But, but notice, what is he going to do? There's going to be a future hope for the nation. As you saw in the video, a, a new Jerusalem, a new, a new redeemed nation. Uh, Flip flip over to chapter 43, and we see particularly God mentioning uh, this coming to them. Chapter 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So there's a future hope there. And that introduces the third sort of theme that we see here is salvation but salvation comes in two senses, doesn't it? What, what, is, what is the first way that God is going to, quote, save the people as he's talking to them in, in these chapters? What's, what's the first way he's going to do that? Yeah, he's going to bring them back from exile. It, it, the, the word salvation or save in both the Old and New Testament, sometimes it means save from sin, and that's we're used to that. But sometimes it just has the, the, the less you know, uh, theologically loaded word as just deliver, right? He's just going to deliver the people. And that's what he means here, that God is going to be faithful following the discipline of captivity to deliver them from uh, their captivity. And, and notice uh, we, we saw that. Um, well, we're going to see that actually in chapter 45. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by name. I have given you a title of honor. Now, he's talking to Cyrus here, the the Persian pagan king. He says, um, though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So what's God saying? He says to Cyrus, I'm going to use you to subdue kings, meaning the Babylonian empire, and to bring them back. In chapter, the end of chapter 44, verse 28, God calls Cyrus his shepherd who will perform all my desire. And uh, he, he will be the one to declare to Jerusalem. This is chapter 44, verse 28 now. She will be rebuilt. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. That, that Cyrus, the Persian king, will be the one to do that. But there's also salvation in a second sense. And if we look at the end of chapter 45 we see this salvation in the second sense, and not just for, Jew, for the Jews, for Israel, but for all. Uh, look at this. In the end of chapter 45, verse 21. De- uh, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Now, Now, watch this. This is the gospel now, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. He's not talking about deliverance from Babylon now. God has gotten out his megaphone and he addresses the whole nations of the earth and says, turn to me, repent and be saved. God calls all people to repentance, to turn and to trust him. And, and that is, that is the, the vision of the book of Isaiah, that God's salvation is not just promised to Israel according to his covenants, but his salvation comes to all through the nation of Israel who was promised way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed, right? 
And then we saw uh, this theme of the servant, right? The servant who comes. Uh, we saw uh, language there talking about Cyrus, talking about Israel. But of course, the, the, the pinnacle of this section is in chapter 52, talking about his servant. And now we recognize that we're not talking about Cyrus. We're not even talking about Israel as a nation. We're talking about one who comes from the nation, Chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And what is it that this servant will do? Chapter 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed and and we get we get these these wonderful uh previews of the redemptive work of the servant who we know is the messiah to come when when we see here uh in verse 10 that the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering right verse 11 as a result of the anguish of his soul he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That this servant is punished not for his own sins, but for the sins of people. And that brings us to the Mount Everest of the book of Isaiah in the coming, uh, the coming Messiah who is foretold in this amazing section. Okay? And chapter 54, verse 1, starts off like this. Shout for joy, O barren one. You have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud. Why is God calling people who have legitimate trials and difficulties and and suffering, like, like the woman who wants a child but can't have one? And the answer is because the servant is coming to make all things well. And now we're going to hear the rest of the story. I can't do Paul Harvey, sorry. The book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king. And all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with. A new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question. That is... 
Who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile. In other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking. But that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future. And that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile is past. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now, remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words, as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant But God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic king from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten, and ultimately killed by his own people. 
In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the holy seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked, and they reject both the servant and his servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance where the servants confess Israel's sin and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world. Them. And so they asked God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry. And that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice and bringing a renewed creation. Where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. Did you get all that? Okay, so in the coming weeks, we'll fill that out as we work our way through uh, the last few miles of the marathon. Okay, so let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this great book that shows us your greatness and your wisdom, your righteousness in terms of taking sin seriously and the punishment that we deserve for that, but also your loving kindness and your grace that you are committed to your promises and Uh, We're eager uh, to see in more detail just how you unfold these things for us, ultimately culminating in the the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and uh, his gospel. And so we're uh, we're grateful uh, to jump back into this journey together. Will you you grow us um, to have a big view of God and, and to have a robust trust and allegiance and love 
that, that grows as our view of you grow as well. Uh, thank you that we can take this journey together. Uh, thank you for Mr. Isaiah and uh, his ministry and how even today uh, these things continue to benefit us. We're grateful, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.